My name is Thomas Malchow. I've been in the fitness industry for over 20 years. I've worked with hundreds of Olympic and professional athletes. I can help you become better at golf. All right. Hello, everyone. This is Thomas Malchow from trainfully.com, and you're listening to the Train Fully podcast, the show dedicated to enhancing your golf performance. If you like our podcast and you find it's helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to our YouTube channel. The handle is at trainfully. And give me a follow on Instagram. My handle is at Elastic Golfer. In this episode, we have my good friend and professional golfer, David Wicks, joining us. So Dave's a member of the Trainfully Inner Circle, and he and I have been working together now for about five years. He currently plays on the Sunshine Tour, which is the PGA Tour of Southern and East Africa. In this episode, Dave and I will discuss the realities of being a professional golfer, including his experience with Q School, what his practice schedule looks like, and how he prioritizes his training. But I want to begin by doing a deep dive into how we can increase your rate of force development. So rate of force development is a measure of explosive strength, or how fast you can develop force. Golfers who have a higher rate of force development perform better because they can achieve higher club head speeds and hit the ball farther. And if you can hit the ball farther, that gives you more options when it comes to shot selection and more control over course management, right? So if you want to play and compete at the highest levels, we may need to increase your rate of force development. And to do that, we'll have to upgrade certain parts of your physiology, just like if we want to increase the horsepower of a car, we have to make specific upgrades to the car, right? We can upgrade the air intake, we can clean the fuel system, add a turbo kit, and upgrade the exhaust. Making those specific upgrades to the car will increase the car's horsepower. It's the same idea with your body. If we make specific upgrades to your physiology, we can increase your rate of force development. So here are three upgrades we can make to your physiology and how to make them to increase your rate of force development. The first thing we can do is we can make your rate coding faster. Rate coding is the process by which an action potential or a nerve impulse travels from the brain through a nerve down the spinal cord and to a muscle causing that muscle to contract. So rate coding is the connection between our central nervous system and our muscles. And we can actually make that connection faster, okay? Without getting into it too much, here's how it works. Action potentials are driven by concentration gradients across neuron membranes. And with the right type of training, our physiology can become more efficient at moving ions around to create concentration gradients so that action potentials travel faster. And if signals travel faster, that improves our intramuscular coordination as well as our intermuscular coordination. Intramuscular coordination describes how well the muscle fibers within an individual muscle work together. Okay, so with faster rate coding, the muscle fibers within a muscle become synchronized 
and contract all at the same time. And this increases the rate of force development for that muscle. Intermuscular coordination, on the other hand, describes how well different muscles work together. Faster rate coding improves our ability to contract some muscles while relaxing the opposing muscles on the other side of the joint. And this improved companionship increases the rate of force development. Okay, so then how do we make your rate coding faster? Well, the most effective way to maximize rate coding is with explosive high velocity power training. So doing things like plyometrics or moving a resistance that is between 30 and 60% of your one rep maximum as fast as you possibly can. For those of you who are members of my inner circle, every training phase will increase your rate coding. But phase five, which is power training, and phase six, which is maximum power training, are designed specifically to maximize rate coding. And that's really the main focus of the Elite Tour 2.0 velocity-based training program, which is actually the program that Dave followed to prepare for Q school. So that's one thing we can do to increase your rate of force development. We can make your rate coding faster. Another way we can increase the rate of force development is with myofibular hypertrophy. So muscle, just like everything else in the body, is made of cells. But in muscle, we typically don't call them muscle cells. We call them muscle fibers. And that's because they actually look like fibers. They're cylinder-shaped, and they're typically several centimeters long. Within each muscle fiber are these bundles of long protein filaments called myofibrils. And there can be hundreds or even thousands of myofibrils within each muscle fiber. The myofibrils are the contractile units of a muscle. So when a muscle contracts and shortens, it's actually the myofibrils that are contracting and shortening and generating force. Myofibular hypertrophy increases the number of myofibrils within a muscle. And again, these are the contractile units, right? So if we have more of them, the muscle can generate more force. So myofibular hypertrophy increases the number of myofibrils. It also increases the size and strength of the contractile proteins within the myofibrils, in particular, the myosin head. And this makes the myosin head stronger. So for those of you who are familiar with the sliding filament theory, you'll know that if the myosin head is stronger, it can bind to actin better and pull actin inwards with more force. So myofibular hypertrophy increases the rate of force development because it increases the number of myofibrils within a muscle and makes the contractile unit stronger. Okay, so then how do we induce myofibular hypertrophy? Well, we do that with hypertrophy training. So with hypertrophy training, we're typically performing three to five sets of six to 12 reps at 75 to 85% of your one rep maximum. For those of you who are members of my inner circle, phase three, is hypertrophy training. That's the purpose of it, to induce myofibular hypertrophy. But we also get a pretty good hypertrophy stimulus from phase two, which is strength endurance training. So that's the second way we can upgrade your physiology to increase the rate of force development, with myofibular hypertrophy. 
A third way we can increase the rate of force development is through the Heinemann size principle with increased motor unit recruitment and selective recruitment. So a motor unit is a group of muscle fibers that are innervated by a single neuron and therefore contract together. So a motor unit is a group of muscle fibers that contract together. And there can be anywhere from 10 muscle fibers to thousands of muscle fibers within each motor unit. So for example, if you're a male, your biceps contain approximately 250,000 muscle fibers. And those 250,000 muscle fibers are grouped into approximately 300 motor units, okay? Now the Heinemann size principle states that motor units are recruited in sequential order from smallest to largest. The smaller motor units, which are recruited first, tend to consist of the type one muscle fibers, which are slow twitch and low force. Whereas the larger motor units, which are recruited after, tend to consist of the type 2A and type 2X muscle fibers, which are fast twitch and high force. So that means when we move, the motor units that contain the type 1 muscle fibers are recruited first. And after all the motor units with the type 1 fibers are recruited, if we still need more force for whatever movement we're doing, then the motor units with the type 2A fibers will be recruited. And after all the motor units with the type 2A fibers are recruited, if we still need more force, then the motor units with the type 2X fibers will be recruited. So that means the more force that's required for the movement, the more motor units that are recruited and the more fast twitch muscle fibers that are recruited. So why is this important? Well, it's important because we can actually exploit the Heinemann size principle to increase the rate of force development. And here's how. If we consistently perform movements that require a large amount of force, we'll train our nervous system to recruit more motor units and more fast twitch muscle fibers. This is a neuromuscular adaptation we call increased motor unit recruitment. And it's a really effective way to increase the rate of force development. And if we train this way consistently, our nervous system will become very highly developed and it will actually learn to bypass those slow twitch, low force motor units and recruit the fast twitch, high force motor units first. This is a neuromuscular adaptation we call selective recruitment. Increased motor unit recruitment combined with selective recruitment dramatically increases the rate of force development. So how do we increase motor unit recruitment and induce selective recruitment? Well, we have to perform movements that require a large amount of force, right? So we could lift something that's really heavy, for example. We could perform one to five reps at 85 to 100% of our one rep maximum. So for those of you who are members of my inner circle, this is the maximal strength training that we perform in phase four and the power training we perform in phase five. So those are three ways we can increase the rate of force development with faster rate coding, myofibular hypertrophy, 
and increase motor unit recruitment and selective recruitment. And for those of you who are members of my inner circle, that's why we have the different training phases. Each training phase targets a specific neuromuscular adaptation, right? That's the science of performance enhancement. The art is knowing who needs what and when. So if you're a member of my inner circle and you're not sure which adaptation you should be targeting and which training phase you should be doing, please feel free to reach out to me. If you're not a member and you want to join, head over to trainfully.com and sign up today. Now, again, guys, the program that Dave followed to prepare for Q School was the Elite Tour 2.0 Velocity-Based Training Program, which we'll get into a little bit here in a moment. So, guys, enjoy the episode, and feel free to reach out to me if you have any questions. All right. So joining us today is our very own Train Fully family member, David Wicks. Dave, welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, Thomas. Thanks for having me on again. Well, first of all, buddy, congratulations on securing your card for the Sunshine Tour. I know that this is something that you've really been working on and working towards recently. I'm very proud of you, man. How does it feel to have all of that hard work pay off? Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's been a it's been a long sort of six months now, um, but it's it's super rewarding. Um, I feel good, and I'm happy, but it's it's sort of like uh, um, this is where the actual hard work now kicks in um, because this is sort of the accumulation of all the hard work and, and things I've done for six to seven months and what we've done for four or five years now. This is where it sort of um repays you know so that that's kind of kind of overwhelming at times but also very exciting Um, exciting. that's an interesting point that you make and that's something that i felt myself when i was an athlete and other people have said too like oftentimes people think that you know you you qualify you get your your card poof all the pressure's off you accomplish your goal you're at the top of the mountain but when you get there you're actually just at the bottom of another mountain. So you have like another big journey ahead of you. Um, I want to talk about, before we get into all that, that, ne- that next journey, Q school, you qualify through Q school. And a lot of people ask me about Q school. Can you explain the process, how it's organized and how it all works? So it differs slightly from tour to tour, uh, but I'll give you the, the basic uh, rundown of, of Q school here. So Q school was um, one. The first there was two stages. So you got the first stage and the final stage. Um, the final, the first stage was held um, in the early April. It was held at a golf course called State Mines, and it's four rounds, and the top forty competitors out of one hundred and thirty-two made it through. Uh, that took a score of about seven under, and I was fortunate enough. I played well and, and came second, and that that advanced me through to the final stage. So then, at the final stage, you obviously have the forty people that made it through at first stage. You've then got sixty players that came down from last year's tour that didn't retain their card, so they would be the people from one hundred to one sixty. They come down through the tour. And then you'll have extra people who have maybe entered on the basis of their world ranking and could maybe skip the first stage. So there was 120 guys at final stage and the top 20 
secured their full playing rights for the season. Um, and that's a pretty consistent baseline for all Q schools. Um, but some, some are obviously less kind in terms of how many cards they give out. And it's, it's really a, a bespoke process for each tour, but, but it, it's very, you know, all encompassing um, and, and very, you know, you, it's very, it's a stressful week. There's no more stressful oh, yeah. week than, than Q school. How did you, so you must've had like a ton of pressure on yourself, as you mentioned, very stressful situation that, that, you know, has several rounds and, and a couple stages to it. How did you manage that pressure so that it wouldn't interfere with your performance? It's a good question. I've been seeing someone um, and doing a lot of research recently. Um, I've kind of come into this theory that, that I kind of know a little too much about sports psychology to not know enough now. So I feel like you have to be on one side of the fence. You have to either know nothing or know a lot. And I felt like I was in the middle, you know, so nothing really worked for me because I could understand a little bit, but I didn't understand maybe where the, the programming mentally came from. So um, I did a lot of learning on, on sports psychology and I, and I found this sort of technique that I, I use now, which is, is basically to try and help me get into flow state and, and get out of you know, thinking ahead and, and, and thinking about all that could happen is to ask myself present-based questions during tournaments. And man, it's changed my whole thought process and and sort of feeling towards pressure completely. You know, if I feel pressured, I would just ask myself something, any question that brings me back to the present. So what, for example, what would be an example? Yeah, it's a good, great question. So maybe I'd get to a shot and I would say, how is this lie going to affect my ball flight here? Not oh, what this lie is not very good. I'm going to, you know, this is going to make it do this. I'm like, how is this going to be? Be curious about everything. Why did I hit that shot? Not, oh, that shot's going to put me in a really tough position. Or if I've hit it into a tough position, is am I able to get up and down from here? Yes, I am. And then you bring yourself back to the present. You make it task-based. Right. And it helps me, it helps me um, you know, it helps me sort of just stay in the moment and really, I, I, I'm, I, I've always been, since I was a child, I've always, whenever I've ever had a good round, I've always thought about how is it going to feel when I hold the last part on 18 and how is it going to feel when, you know, all my friends hear what I shoot and things like that, you know, whereas this, this technique has really helped me just stay. And I still have fleeting thoughts like that, you know, and that, that they'll never go. And a big thing of this is to understand that for me, those thoughts are, are natural and just to embrace them, you know, yeah. like I, I, not to try and block any sort of thought or pressure out is just to embrace it completely. And then ask questions, lots of lots of questions, and it just seems to really settle me and keep me in a, in a in a place where I have the answers for everything I need. I just need to go out there and execute, you know. So I guess it like it helps you move away from the like detached from the emotions. Not that you're not feeling the emotions, but it's helping you become more analytical. So you're like you mentioned, you're more focused on the task. Definitely, yeah, and it helps you get into flow state. So. Um, obviously if there, there are many ways to do it, but, but to be present and, and have, you know, confidence in your ability and high risk shots and, and things like that, it, it really helps me get into flow. And, and I feel a lot, you know, just a lot more in control of my own destiny when I'm playing golf. Cause sometimes I would feel I'm playing really good, but I'm just waiting for this, the mishap or I'm thinking about something that might go wrong or, 
Um, I'm playing so well, I'm thinking about 10, 11, 12 under when I'm seven under, you know? Whereas this just sort of takes that away from me and keeps me asking questions about, it just keeps me present, which is, which is very important, very, very important for me. Is that something that you're, you're aiming to do is to, to get into that flow state? Maybe explain exactly what that flow state is and, and how important is it for you to get into flow state? And then what does it mean if you don't? I, 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 think, I think I've been doing this sort of research and, and trying to get into flow state for probably four, five, six months. I, I, I don't think I've achieved it yet. And I, and I think when you do achieve it, you know, I've achieved it by accident in my great rounds in the past, but you've got a blueprint as to why, how you got there, what, what did you do, um, how are you feeling? And, and I don't really have those blueprints from those rounds. I just know that I was in flow state because I'm just there and, and everything's sort of in front of me and I'm just laser focused. But I think I get in and out of it for shots. And, and I think that the, the task is to try and get as close to it as possible. You're never going to spend your whole round or your whole career in flow state it's just not possible it's just a, a almost like a a benchmark to aim for and if you're close to it you know things like risk increased risk with increased belief in your performance um has you know a good chance of getting you into flow state but increased risk with low belief in your performance increases anxiety greatly so right. it's it's you know, there's there's a multitude of sort of ways or theories as, as how to get into it, but I really just focus on staying present um, and believing in my ability more. Because if I believe in my ability more, then when I take on riskier shots or I, I have tough tee shots that require a, a good golf golf shot, it helps me get into flow because I have belief in my ability more. Um, I'm not, I'm not, I used to worry about specific tee shots. If there was a tee shot on a, on a hole that I just didn't like, that may be 30 yards wide or whatever it may be, I used to sit in the apartment or the hotel and worry about that tee shot the next day because, you know, it was a problem. Whereas now I'd ask questions, can I hit that ball in the fairway? Yes, there's, obviously I can. Can I hit a good shot on that hole? And it instantly brings me to the present moment and instantly draws me back, said, yes, you can do it. You might not do it. And that's something you address, but that's something, if I might not do it, I might ask, why did I not do it that time? You right. Know? And questions can always drag you back to where I am and being centered in the moment, which is something I'm really, really sort of experimenting with at this point, but I'm really finding fruit with it, you know? One of the things that you've mentioned to me before, and I've asked you this because you have a reputation going all the way back to your college days as being somebody that, you know, under pressure, like performs extremely well and really mm -hmm. steps up to the plate. And, and I asked you about that and you had mentioned that like you feel the adrenaline you said, and, and you've learned how to use that. Can you kind of just go through that again, explain like, cause oftentimes I hear when I talk to golfers, they're almost trying to fight that and push the adrenaline back, but you yeah. don't You almost encourage it. Don't you? Yeah. I think, I think there's a, uh... In terms of adrenaline, I think I'm, I'm, I think that's what really strong part of my game is understanding when I feel it and, and how it affects my body. I feel like my it's a really interesting feeling, but I feel like my muscles get tenser and tighter, and therefore my my 
low point of my club actually gets higher up. So if I was to swing as I normally would, I would actually catch it a little bit thin. Mm, yeah. So I, I so I know that my my muscles are a little tighter and my body's a little more tense and my everything's sort of just coming towards my body a millimeter or two. And I know I've got this this swing speed which is going to go three four miles per hour higher. So I'm very I'm very aware that I need to you know make sure I'm catching turf, make sure that I'm under clubbing for sure. So if I'm playing to if there's a back pin and I'm under pressure, I'm playing to the middle of the green with a, a conservative number because this thing can fly six, right. seven, eight, nine miles further. Um, and, I, and I'm pretty good at, at, at judging numbers and especially especially in pressured situations and, and using adrenaline to my benefit because it's extra speed at the end of the day. Um, I can't right. really think of a time where I, I didn't really embrace adrenaline. Nerves, nerves is something I've definitely, I mean, there's no professional golfer out there that has not struggled with nerves at, at one point in their life. And I think for two years, I, I started to convince myself that I wasn't great under pressure. But it's funny, golf's a funny thing. If, the only difference between thinking you're good under pressure and thinking you're not good is the, the thought. Yeah. It's literally that. But I changed my thought. I was like, oh, I am really good under pressure. And then I started performing under pressure. It's not yeah. just a, it's, it's, it's so simple, but it, it really does yeah. pay off just this self-talk, like telling yourself you're going to make, I mean, in college, if I had a 10-foot putt to win something or to, to win something for the team, I was going in every single time, even after college. And you go through periods of your life where you change as a human, you grow up, you become emotionally more intelligent and, and you learn more as well. So I now understand more about the psyche. So it's harder to convince myself because I know a bit more. So going through those stages of life, I started to question my ability under pressure. And it wasn't until, again, six or seven months ago, once I missed Q school at, for the European Tour qualifying by a shot, um, that I really sort of decided to assess what sort of... Um, what I can do to, to sort of get to the next level or am I wasting my time in this sport, you know? Um, and, and this was sort of what it boiled down to. And it's just a bit of self-talk. It's really simple to do and it's so effective. Well, it's been extremely effective for me, especially being British, you know, we don't like to talk very positive about anything and especially not ourselves. Um, but uh, I'm definitely coming away from that, you know, and this, you know, along with performing under pressure is a lot of, to do with how your self-image is. Well, your girlfriend was your caddy during Q school. And so you guys yeah. went through all of that, the whole um, experience together. Does having her there with you help you with all of that, help you with your nerves? And what kind of impact has that had? Definitely. I mean, you got you to remember, we, we turned up. So we turned, the, the Q school started on the Tuesday. We turned up on the Friday evening to South Africa. Neither of us have ever been to South Africa. We turned up. Um, and it was just a completely different place. We turned, we, we got an Uber to our Airbnb and there was load shedding. So we didn't have power for three hours and we were like, what is going on here? You know, so we're completely out of our comfort zone. It's just me and me and my girlfriend. And, um, we were so jet lagged for three, four days. And the first day of Q school, I had literally one hour sleep. Um, there was a big house party next door to us and we could not sleep at all. And. So we were, you know, I was fearing the worst that first day because I had an hour of sleep, you know, your cognitive levels are low, but she really helped me get through that. And that was, you know, 
that was a big thing. She she knew I was tired. She had slept the same as me, but she could tell that, you know, if we got through the first day, we'd be okay because we'd better you know, sleep, sleep as much as we needed afterwards. So especially for that first stage and, you know, someone to travel with, someone to talk with um, and someone to just speak about things that are unrelated to golf afterwards. Um, I'm not really a social person within the golf scene. I don't, don't like to make too many friends within golf because I'm kind of there to work. So in, in, in my opinion, I, I like to, I like to do my work on the, on the, for the, or it might be on the practice rounds or the day. And then I like to go on and relax. And Megan's a great asset for me in that regard. You know, we'll go and grab some dinner or hang out and, the conversation won't be about golf purely because Meg doesn't really doesn't really love golf, um, but she loves helping me, which is a really good combination. So yeah, and I, and I try my best to not get upset at her, but we 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 do have our uh, a few a few tiffs, should we say? But I mean, ninety nine percent of the time, it's it's absolutely absolutely amazing, and she's going to caddy for me the first two weeks coming up which I'm excited about in Zimbabwe and Zambia. So it will be two very, very new experiences again. Well, I want to get into the preparation now, the, what you did to prepare for Q School. And you, you touched on earlier that last time you went through Q School, you missed by one shot. And so um, you were laser focused for this opportunity here. And so I want to get into what you did because you had a good formula here. And, and I want to begin with your practice schedule. How many hours a day were you practicing? What were you working on? And how did you allocate your time? That's a great question. So my, my practice schedule was actually less than, than previous in terms of hours spent at the golf course. Um, I was, it was horrible for me because I could, I could spend Genuinely, I could spend 10 hours a day at the course. But the 10 hours a day, I'm, I started to realise, was, was actually counterproductive. So I really made my practice schedule, my time, efficient at the golf courses. So I was spending lots of performance practice, um, lots of times um, spent practising under pressure, practising things that, in scenarios that would actually appear on the golf course. Um, I would still spend four to five hours a day practicing, but that was down from seven to eight. And those four to five were specific, uh, measurable as well. They were very measurable. I used an app called UpGame. And what that allowed me to do was to track from day one. We had a conversation at, at my golf club. I remember it well, when I sort of said, this is what I want to do. We want to, you know, where I want to get my body, what I want to do and achieve. Um, and I downloaded an app and it would give you performance drills and practice games to play to keep it interesting, but under course conditions. And then I could enter my scores for those drills and apps and putting and chipping and wedge game and driving and iron play. And I could track them. So I could, I was like, this is perfect for me. I'm a, I'm a person who likes to see progression. If I don't see progression early, I, I start to lose enthusiasm. So this was perfect for me. I could track every practice session or every drill that I did and I can put my scores in and it will give me a graph and it will show me how I'm improving, you know, and then that was the green light for me to just really kick on and 
be more efficient. And I was more tired after practicing. I could spend 10 hours out there and not be tired, but I was four or five hours. I would come back and I was, I was waxed. I was so tired because I was efficiently using my body and my, my, my brain power, my cognitive function. Everything that I was doing was, was being put into that session. I was leaving nothing at the course, which was cool. It's a really good feeling. Um, and then to build that up over weeks, months, it's such a confidence boost and knowing you can't really give much more um, and you've got a schedule that you believe in, you know. Sometimes I'd just, I'd have to, you know, really pull myself away from the course because I would really enjoy a practice session or something, but it wasn't in what I wanted to do that day. Um, so I was just spending time, you know, building bad habits or something like that. Um, and sometimes, you know, you, you love the game of golf, but you also want to be a professional at it. So, you know, that takes precedent. Right. Well, let's get into the golf fitness, the performance training now. Um, and this is obviously something you and I work together on. Uh, for the people listening, how the, this relationship with Dave and I works, and this is true with all the professional and, and elite golfers I work with, is either the golfer themselves or their coach will tell me what the short-term or medium-term performance goals are, right? So if we're thinking of this as like being a journey, those performance goals are like the destination where we want to end up. So then after learning what the goals are, I do an assessment to find out where the golfer is currently at, right? So we can think of the assessment as showing us where we're starting from, the starting point. So we know the starting point. We know the destination. So then we simply train to make up the difference. And Dave, we've been doing this now for four or five years. And, and, and during that time, you've had you know, slightly different starting points and different goals. In January, you and I had a conversation. And during that conversation, you told me you wanted to take another run at securing a tour card, right? And so we came up with a program to help you achieve that goal. Can you explain the importance of that type of performance training and how it helps you achieve your goals? It's, it's huge. It's, it's, um, well, I, I came to you in, in that moment and I was, you know, sort of hoping that I could, I could do what I was going to do at this point. I mean, you had told me at this, when we'd had the conversation that I'd be here in South Africa with a card I probably wouldn't have agreed with, uh, I believed it, but the performance training, especially that we did, that we do, you know, especially, and, and, and I think it's actually, I was actually thinking about this recently, the, the speed and the strength training that we target to, you know, and we can track using club head speed, uh, ball speed, and we can also track using obviously the, the, the weights that I'm lifting is, is, really sort of beneficial especially to pro golf right now you know you everybody's hitting it so far you have to be efficient you have to hit it far you have to be you know getting the ball out there horses are long but the performance training becomes extremely beneficial for me with the two prehab and what well, three prehab sessions that we do a week yeah. and and I learned this the hard way last year. I, I had a shoulder injury. Um, I don't remember if we spoke about it on the last pod, but 
it was a brutal time for me. I couldn't play golf, couldn't earn money. I couldn't do anything. And uh, for about two months, it was, it was horrible. Um, so I'll tell you a quick story as to why it's so important and why I was so thankful that I, I stuck with these pre-ab routines and this performance training is because we played golf with a guy in the practice room from Austria in, on the Sunshine Tour. Good golfer, saved up all his money, worked in a pro shop for the year, saved up his money to come play Q School. I saw him on the first day of the event and said, how did you play, buddy? And he had to pull out after two holes because he had a bad back. His back went. So we spent all this money, saved all this time and energy to go up to, to, to South Africa. And it's all been hampered by an injury. You know, he's, no refund, nothing's coming back your way. That is your, your, and that just highlighted to me how important the performance training I've put in. And I, I knew it was, I knew it was important, of course, because I'd, I'd struggled with it before, but seeing that and seeing his, his failings or not failings, his, you know, lack of fortune actually made me feel proud of how much prehab and how much work we put into, you know, injury avoidance and, and making myself healthy because I'm a strong, I'm a strong individual. So obviously we do lots of strength, speed, speed, strength work. Um, and, and, and that's where I really, you know, I love those sessions and the prehabs can be, can be really tough to get through sometimes because they're, they're, they're painful at times some of the things yeah. that I do in them but they're really beneficial for me as a, as a performer to make sure that I can perform and that's that's above all goal fitness to me um, being able to perform long having an elongated career and being able to perform at a high level that I do four days a week um, I used to play tournaments and, and you know before I met before we started working together and I'd feel great for one to two rounds and then three and four rounds would be a slog and I'd, I'd hit it completely different for two, three days in a row. And that's what we look at it. Of course, I'd hit it different because my warm up was different every day. My prehab was different. My cool down was different. Some days I'd cool down, some days I wouldn't. And your body's not, you know, not doing the same thing. So it's going to perform differently. It's going to be inconsistent. So that performance training that we do together is, is absolutely crucial for me. Um, mentally as well, it's very important. It's very, if I feel like I miss a session or um, the first week in South Africa, I played the, the tournament and I took a week off, just just even the prehabs, the, the stuff that we do to try and avoid injury. Um, and a lot of that, it's very similar to the Train for Lee, um, mm -hmm. program. Um, and instantly I could tell a difference. Instantly, within two or three days, I noticed a difference. We, we couldn't bring a foam roller here. We couldn't bring any massage balls. We, we had no room in the bags, you know. Yeah. Didn't have we didn't have our bands because of weight restrictions and things. So, so I'm starting straight away. You start to notice you got you got to go out and get these things. Then you go out to a sports store. You buy these these things that help us. And and instantly I could see a difference in my my feeling and mentally felt much better um, to go ahead and compete. And, and and it's yeah, it's super important. I couldn't I couldn't value it enough above. I do a lot of coaching as well just getting people to warm up before they play golf is, is a, it's a massive low-hanging fruit for golfers it really is the amount of people that turn up and and, and don't have the uh that are just that's just not warmed up it's just crazy you can't play yeah. any other sport uncalled you wouldn't run a, you wouldn't run a marathon or you wouldn't run 100 meters cool down so it's yeah 
pretty great. Well, and it's interesting because, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people, when they think about like the golf fitness side of things, I don't know if they really see it as almost like I, the way I see it and the way that I, you and I use it is, is an investment. Like it's a, we talked about this probably the first time we, we started working together is I use the analogy of capacity and the purpose of, you know, the things that you do in the gym or, or at home, wherever you do them to prepare for golf is really to increase your capacity to play, to play more golf because the, your ability to practice is really what is going to improve your golf specific skill. But if you can give your ability to, or give yourself, your body, the ability to put more into your practice because you're faster, you're stronger, you have, you know, stronger cognitive abilities because you're fit that that's just going to, to help you improve. Um, injuries are inevitable. As you mentioned, you, you've had a couple injuries. Uh, you had low back pain. That's how we first met. You had the shoulder injury mm -hmm. last year. Um, how, how did those injuries impact you psychologically? Well, the low back pain, not so much because we got it figured out within sort of a week or two. It was pretty, pretty remarkable. Honestly, I played with it for two or three months and, and I did uh, the, the train release set up for, I think it was about three weeks and I was injury free. So that wasn't too bad, but the, the shoulder injury psychologically was, was, was awful. Honestly, awful. It's just, it, it, I couldn't putt. I couldn't putt because I couldn't bring my, my hands in front of my body without pain. So it was, it was, um, it's not like I can go and putt and chip for three or four hours a day. I was literally sitting on, sitting at home. I couldn't earn money because I was living in America where I didn't have a visa to earn money outside of golf. So the only way I could earn money was by playing and performing. So I was absolutely broke. Um, I was broke, broke physically and broke mentally because it was absolutely, it was just a time in my life where I, I took a, took a, a lot for I seen that I saw that I took a lot for granted especially with golf and um and then I, I put in so much work in the run up to that before the season to get that injury two months before was a, obviously a big blow um which led sort of bled into the season a little bit but to be honest with you I never felt completely committed in my swing for about six or seven months after because you're just always little worried that it's you know something's going to go again yeah um can you can you hear that yeah what is that the sprinklers are just annoying let me put you on my headphones oh, oh no i can't hear it now i just heard it for a second yeah it, oh, okay. it, yeah i can't yeah. <laughs> i thought i was like oh, is there a snake maybe at your feet <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right. um but um yeah where were we sorry Sorry about that. We're talking about the injury, the shoulder injury. You couldn't commit to the yeah. swing for a while. Yeah. For so, yeah. So um, for six or seven months after, um, I couldn't commit to, I would say, drives, things that are thick, rough, uh, anything I was trying to chop out. Um, I just I just wouldn't, didn't have the commitment. And it was hard to explain because it wasn't, there was no physical problem, but it was all a mental problem. Yeah. because of the pain that I'd had from before. So that took a long time to get over. And then we obviously were doing lots of workouts to make sure it doesn't happen again. Um, and then when we 
the season finished, what like we always do, we typically meet up and or meet well, meet up via Zoom and and figure out, you know, what we're gonna do for the off season. And my shoulder strength had gone up, you know, a, a lot. And I was now, you know, which just hearing that my shoulder strength was, you know, I was doing X amount of weight, I can't know what it was, but I could do now do this amount of weight and we'd not trained. I mean, my shoulder, just the band work that I've been doing had strengthened my shoulder. That was enough for me to go, ah, I'm stronger than I've ever been in this area of my body. This was enough to help me to, to, to commit to shots and, and things like that. And it was a process for sure. Well, you know, that, that's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that because um, one of the, like one of the things that I try to communicate to athletes when they get hurt is that, you know, injuries, nobody wants to get injured. Everybody's going to get injured. That's the first thing. They're inevitable. Everybody's going to get injured. Um, and they're almost like an opportunity. Well, they are an opportunity to deal with things that ordinarily you wouldn't probably focus on because you're so focused on performing. But if you're kind of taken out of your sport for a bit because you got to deal with an injury, it's an opportunity to really optimize other parts of your body. And, you know, for pretty much every injury that I've worked with, with somebody, there's a protocol to fix it. And, and if the person follows the protocol dil diligently and they're sleeping well and they're eating well, I don't think I've ever had anybody not recover from, from an injury for the most part. And, mm -hmm. and now I mean, you did a great job following the program, the rehab program that, that I outlined for you. you. You did it very diligently. Does that experience overcoming that shoulder pain and, and now your shoulder is stronger than ever, like, like you've said, does that give you like more confidence? Like ne maybe next time you get injured, perhaps it won't be so psychologically um, hard because you're like, yeah, I can overcome this. It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, I would say as long as the injury was out of season, I would be absolutely um, convinced that I would return and return stronger. Um, whereas now I'm in such a, uh, a fickle stage of my golf career. You know, if I, if I was to get injured and, and lose my card or something like that right now, then that would, that would be me pretty much out of golf for life at this point because of financial, you know, strains on, on the game. So this is, you know, this is why I, I spoke to you about, I mentioned prehab work before, but that's why I'm so diligent with that because although I, I would feel comfortable coming back from an injury stronger, I, I really can't afford to get injured. That the I'm not on the PGA Tour where you get a, a medical exemption for the year, you know. Um, you would uh, I would struggle to get a medical exemption where I am and, you know, I just I could not physically afford to, to to get injured. So, in the long and short of your answer, yes, I, I know I would come back stronger because I've done it before, right? But <laughs> the, the thought of getting injured at this point just just is very scary. Hence, why I spend so much time and and effort into making you know my body. Um, not even get strong, but just, just, just be in a spot where it doesn't feel like it can get injured, you know? Yeah. And you know, that's such a great message, Dave, for the people listening who, you know, anybody listening to this podcast, I'm sure they're, they're putting work in. Um, but I mean, I tell people all the time and I've worked with, you know, professional golfers. I worked with football players, like FC Barcelona. I've worked with hockey players 
and the amount of time and effort that professional athletes put into preventative maintenance to keep themselves from getting injured. Cause even say in the, in the national hockey league, if a guy gets injured, that same, like you mentioned, maybe he's out of the lineup for a bit, somebody takes his job. Right. And so athletes take preventative maintenance really seriously and it really does have a huge impact on their game. And, and it's something for the people listening that, I mean, only it, it's such a great investment to take care of your body not just for your golf game, but just for, for, for life and, and um, staying healthy and, and all of that. Um, let's, let's turn now to your next stage here, your next journey. What are your goals for, for this season and for next season? So my, I have a few goals for this year. I would, I, so <clears throat> for this season, I would like to, 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 to get a win on the Sunshine Tour. Um, winning on the Sunshine Tour would qualify me for the Sunshine Tour co-sanctioned events. Um, so those co-sanctioned events, they are six DP World Tour events and five Challenge Tour events. So those events are co-sanctioned with the DP World Tour um, and the Sunshine Tour. So if I'm able to qualify for those events, obviously the, the money is great and the potential... Um, of jumping from the Sunshine Tour to the DP World Tour is a is an opportunity for me. Um, so winning winning would be a, a really you know a really beneficial thing for my for my career. Um, I also have a couple more goals. One other goal would be to be just just to survive financially for this season. That's a that's a big one. If I can if I can maybe come in the top fifty of the Order of Merit by the end of the season, that would qualify me through the through for again all the six DP World Tour events for next season and the six challenge tour, uh, five challenge tour events for next season. So it's a really big incentive to come in the top 50 on this tour by the end of the season. The only problem with that is if, if you're not entered into the the six DP world events and the five challenge tour events, obviously it's a lot harder to earn your money yeah. to get into the top 50. So it's kind of like a club where if you're in the top 50, it's quite easy to maintain it because you're playing much more, you're playing more events with higher purses, higher money, higher payouts. And the points, the, the, the structure of the order of merit is points-based. So it is a little less biased towards money, but it's still heavily in, in that favor. So there's kind of this top 50 club on, on the Sunshine Tour, which is difficult to break into. And, and that's a goal of mine to do this season, um, which would mean I've sort of secured myself you know, hopefully financially um, for this, well, not financially, but just to break break some sort of even for this season and then get into those big events next season or at the back end of this season and uh, um, and perform and show the world what I can do, you know. And I'm confident I can, if I get that opportunity on the stage, then I can, can really grasp it and take it. Um, and then finally, um, Another one which sort of relates to to mentally is just it's just really really enjoy my time here. Um, in Canada, I, I, I played on the Canadian tour, and I had a blast. I enjoyed every second of it, but I just wasn't um, emotionally um, or mentally ready to travel around Canada on my own for four or five months. Megan came out for a few events, which was great, and I played well when she was there, but 
I just wasn't mentally emotional. I was mentally young. It was my first year as a pro. Um, and one of these people that don't really like to socialize at tournaments. So I would go two or three weeks without an actual conversation with anybody. It was really was odd. Um, oh, it was, yeah, extremely lonely at times, for sure. Um, I'm pretty good with my own company. Um, and I think you find your, you know, I think you find most of the happiest people on the planet are, are happy with their own company. But, you know, there'd be days or, or, or days where I'd be sitting in my hotel room or something, and, you know, I'd go down to, for dinner and I would talk and my mouth would feel dry and anything weird because I've not said a word all day long. It's like <laughs> night, and it's just really odd. It's so I just wasn't ready at that time. And I think now I'm better prepared. Um, I'm excited. Obviously COVID took, took some years off of, of my playing career. So it's, um, it's just, I'm just really excited to just be able to go and travel around Africa and play professional golf you know um which is which is it's just if you can't enjoy that and you can't be you know i think i think with tours mentally you have to be really really sufficient and, and good because your golf swing is going to come and go throughout the year you're not going to hit it great every year you're not going to putt one all year you're going to chip well you're going to have you're going to have days and weeks where you're very good but if you can if you can maintain a level of you can you can always be mentally good, or you can always choose to be mentally good. Um, I think if, if I can if I can make if I can set those goals and be more aware, like I am now, of what I'm doing mentally, then I think uh, you know I've, I've just got really really high hopes for the season. I really do, you know. You know, and there's a, a lot of people, and you know, just not especially golf, other sports as well, where people dream of being a professional athlete being a professional golfer but at times it's not always as glamorous as it may seem on tv like, like it's a grind and like you mentioned it can be very lonely um maybe talk about the realities of being a professional golfer because there's a lot of amateurs listening to be like oh man i would love to be a professional golfer but what is it really like well you mentioned the word glamour there i would never use that word to describe <laughs> the level below the top um you know it's it's far from glamorous i mean it's i mean it's very difficult um but it's very rewarding and extremely i wouldn't change it for the world but it's it's um yeah a lot of peanut butter jelly sandwiches um a lot of dodgy dodgy hotel rooms and dodgy dodgy airbnbs and um a lot of fingers crossed moments when you're booking accommodation that you, know, you chose a slightly cheaper one and hopefully it's it's okay and you know we went to our first airbnb and there was rats running around on the above us and uh this week and like this month and yeah it's it's far from glamorous and um you know you're counting your money every day and seeing what you spent and you know trying it trying to invest in myself is, is something i've really taken to my taken to, to you know i've really tried to invest financially into myself this season with a bit more coaching and a bit more you know um even just some like products that have helped me like uh, like this statistics website that i'm using and, and things like that and just trying to invest and to make myself a better player 
but always in the back of your head, you know, you've got, you've got, oh, I've got $900 left and I've got a tournament this week. And if I lose, if I, if I don't make the cut in this tournament, then I'm really up against it, you know? And so it's, it's a, just a constant battle. Um, and you're just, you know, you're just like, like a lot of people right now and where I'm from in England is, and I'm sure you are, there's a lot of people really tight on the purse strings, but I'm just doing it whilst seemingly just playing golf. You know, sometimes it can be tough to practice and, get a really good session in when you're on tour, you know, when you maybe you've not made a cut for two weeks and you've just spent two and a half grand or three grand and, you know, <laughs> you've got to make a cut in the next two and, you know, you're trying to practice, but in the back of your mind, you know, maybe you've got your credit card bill bouncing up and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's far from glamorous, but I, again, I, I, I sound like I'm complaining. I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Like, I, I absolutely love what I'm doing. And for the so people listening, to- as he's t- talking about these struggles and these stresses, he's got the biggest smile on his face. So I can tell you absolutely. Yeah. You, you, you love the yeah. struggle. You love the grind. And, you know, and that's, you have to. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. If you don't, it's pointless. Me and my girlfriend, we, we talked about writing journals or books about some of the, some of the things that has happened to us over the years with, with um, traveling to and from golf tournaments, you really wouldn't believe some of the some of the things that have happened. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's never never <laughs> it's never the same day twice. I can tell you that. And, um, especially at this level, you know, a few good days in a row, you're expecting you're expecting some bad news somewhere along the line. You know, whether it's the golf clubs have been lost or <laughs> uh, the people are, you know, targets are not going to send you golf balls anymore or something, along, you know, something, or something along those lines. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's far from glamorous, but you, you've just got to enjoy it and um, just, just keep trying your best. I think it's, uh, I feel like I'm knocked, I've knocked on the door so many times now that the, the, <laughs> the thread is bare that I, I must be close. So, I um, you know, I'm really hopeful for the season, and I believe I can uh, achieve great things um, over here in South Africa. Well, I know a lot of people believe in you, man. You, you, you're a special talent. There's no doubt about that. But I mean, it takes a lot more than talent to make it in professional golf. And you got the work ethic, you got the attitude, and, and I know there's a lot of people rooting for you. Um, t- speaking of like opportunities and and different things happening in golf here. What are your thoughts on the live tour? It's a good question. It's a grenade. Let me catch it. Um, uh, I, I, I really like it. I really do. Um, I, I wish there's a world where the PJ tour and live could, could coexist. And I think that will happen eventually. Um, I think the format and the, the idea of teams, I, I just, I, I keep having this idea of imagine if the teams were brought out by manufacturers. So you had Team Mizuno, Team Titleist, Team Shrixen, Team Mura, Team Callaway, and you had these players that played under that brand. And then you've got like an F1 style sort of, and then maybe maybe with that system you you could release the purse strings and and put some extra R&D and maybe take away some of the limitations in golf and see what these manufacturers can do. And I think I think that the format is just incredible. I hate the 46 players because if if that sort of doesn't help players in my situation <laughs> but um, that are trying to get onto a tour, but I really do like the idea of the team scenario. And I think 
I think if it can be marketed well and sold well, then I think it's got a future in the game. Um, but I would say if I was Brooks Kepka and, and you know Cam Smith and these guys, I would be missing as well as enjoying the time I'm having. You know, those the the, the one in Australia last week was great, but as well as enjoying those times, I, I would miss full round, quiet, competitive rounds of golf, you know, like the majors. Um, but I would want to play in a few of those beforehand, before playing in major. So um, I, I don't begrudge anyone's decision to go. I, I probably, I mean, if you could have offered me t- 20 grand and I would have gone. I was supposed to time. But, um, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't think it's. I don't think it's a competitor of the PJ thing. I, th- I think it's just different. I really do. I really do. Um, and, I, and I think it has a future. And I, and I hope the guys on the PJ tour that were on the PJ tour, like Brooks and DJ, I'd like. I, I mean, we want to see the best players play, right? So I'd like to see them in tournaments more often together. Um, so that would be cool. It, it looked like a Kepka in the Masters. Like I, I have no idea what's going on in his head, but he seemed to really enjoy that competition and having everybody there. And he seemed to really thrive on that until the last day anyway. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering about that. He seemed to really enjoy it, maybe miss. Yeah, the they've done a good job in hiring the players that they did because they're all per- some villains, a lot of villains out of that, yeah. you know, seen as villains on the BJ Tour. But that's just a great way to, to, to hire people, I think. I think they've been clever and... Like I say, I love golf and I just want golf to do well. So whatever that, at whatever best concerns golf is sort of my, but I do, I do enjoy watching it. I, I don't, I probably watch about the same amount as live as I do PGA Tour now. Um, I think the coverage is great and, and no advertisements is, is, is absolutely phenomenal. You mentioned earlier, like when you're talking about the team format and having the manufacturers, different teams, mm-hmm. um, what are your thoughts on bifurcation? Uh, severely dislike it. Yeah, it's not something I'm on board with. Um, just purely because there are so many, I, I, I don't understand the USGA's argument for trying to bring it in. Uh, I read a little bit of the report, but you know, they were talking about clubs having to buy up X amount of land to try and host tournaments and. Um, that you know, Augusta had to extend and buy land. Well, unfortunately, Augusta doesn't come into an out is an outlier in terms of the, the, the clubs that play under the USGA. There are no, you know, I I love the idea that I can play the same. If I if I turn up to my country club, I can play with the members, and it's you know, it's we're playing the same ball. We're playing. It doesn't matter if I shoot sixty two. What? Why does it matter to the club that I'm, I'm playing against and I'm playing at? Um, but the USGA's sort of ruling when it was more based on clubs having to buy up extra plots of land to make the golf courses long enough. And I don't think I've played a golf course where the average player is too long for it. Never, never yeah. once. You're just talking about the highest level of golfers. You're talking about one or two percent of golf that that are playing golf courses that are too short for them. Well, that doesn't seem like a huge problem to me. Um, there are lots of long golf courses. That- yeah, you, I, hit, I, hit it, I hit it a long way, but if I hit it a long way into, if I hit it a long way into thick rough and the fairways and the fairway and the greens are firm, then 
then look at TPC Sawgrass. It's not that long, but no one can get it around there in good numbers every year because it's a tough golf course. The, the, the grass is long, the greens are firm. There are lots of ways to make courses more difficult. And, you know, I'd be, I'd be one for, I don't know, fading the rougher, having the rough thicker at, you know, start at 270 and then thickening it slowly all the way to 340, whatever you want to do. But the only way you're going to make courses harder is, I mean, and you, but the bifurcation, you're going to make distance even more important for longer players, um, which I don't like the idea of. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not a fan um, from what I've read so far. Maybe there's some, you know, a second report that might come out that might change my mind. But again, it seems unfair on the, the companies in, in golf that seem to have to take their head on this R&D that they're to, so they're going to have to spend millions of dollars to on research and design for golf balls, but they're going to give those golf balls away for free to professionals because no one's going to buy them. So yeah, that's how, do they, how do they make any income on the golf? So that, what are they doing? It's just for a charity? Like, is it just going to be one universal ball? Because why, what's the benefit of making a Pro V1 Pro if no one's going to buy it? You're going to give them to pros for free. So you're just going to, you're just going to hurt the bottom line of companies. In my mind, that's what it seems like so far. So, I like the I like I like the way it is. Make golf courses tougher. Is it's a lot. There's plenty of ways you can make them tougher if that's the goal. But um, I would be more for making the drivers have a maximum speed or a maximum size um, and things like that because then everyone gets to play the same game. I like the idea that I can turn up and play with my my friends who are terrible golfers and play the same golf <laughs> take their money yeah exactly exactly i don't want them to have any advantage over me <laughs> but so, no yeah i know there are lots of pros for it i know tiger woods was for it but this is probably the only one rare time that i would disagree with mr woods well how many course records do you own you must just just two just i had two. one in england. i had one in england and it got taken away because the to my home course in england um, had new owners and they, they changed the course massively so kind of got like I could say held maybe forever no one would ever break it but it's kind of gone now because they've changed the course so I just have the two in Jacksonville right now and what are um, they hopefully I can get some more this season uh, Jack's Beach Golf Club and um, San Jose my, my club I play at what were the scores um, 61 at San Jose, and this is going to sound so bad, but I don't remember what I shot at Jack's Beach. It's um, 62, I think, 62, 63, something like that. It's quite a new course, new design. Um, to, to be honest, it, it may have even been broken by then. So um, that's something I should probably check out. But for, for the longest time, for a long time, it was, it's been course record. It might still be, but it, it wouldn't surprise me if maybe it's been broken. But they, they haven't had any tournaments there. So I thought I have this memory of you shooting in the 50s one time is that true or were you on like a 61 you would have been close oh uh, no i did i shot back to back i shot a 58 and a 59 and that wasn't those, that wasn't a course record yeah well the caveat is that i didn't mention because it sounds so much better it was a par 66 golf course oh okay <laughs> <laughs> so the course record was 57 so, oh, but it's a really tough course. Really, good. they're actually some of my best rounds. Really good golf course, and it's a big tournament that Rod Perry ha ha hosts every year. And um, 
Yeah, yeah, I shot 50, 58, 50, 59, 58. Um, so, yeah, they, they were 50s, and I did tell every single person I knew. <laughs> well, I've, I've got a hole-in-one, but it was on a pitching putt, so I think it was like that a... That counts. It was, a, I think, like a 65-yard hole or something, but still, yeah. <laughs> One more I tell people though as a picture. Yeah, <laughs> that's definitely. Well, I haven't. I've not had one. I've had a hole in one on a far four, and it hit a tree. It didn't. Didn't have any. It wasn't a very good shot at all. It hit a tree <laughs> really, off, the, off the tree. Um, and then I've never had one on a par three. I actually slam dunked it last week at Q School, and it went in the bunker. Oh. So maybe we're saving them for the season. Who knows. Well, Dave, where can people go to follow your journey? What's your What's your Instagram? So my Instagram is um, at Dave Wicks, um, and I also have a golf specific Instagram, which is at D Wicks Golf. Um, I will be posting on there. Facebook as well, David Wicks. I post a lot on there, um, and then via the Sunshine Tour app and uh, the Sunshine Tour website. The first tournament starts a week today, actually, in Zimbabwe. Yeah. So um, it's meant to be a really good event. Lots of crowds and, um, yeah, it should be fun. So the course is meant to be beautiful, too. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, yeah, just hoping I get there all in one piece. And, you know, it's, a, it's exciting well, times. We're going to uh, connect here, you and I, to do another just assessment to make sure everything's moving and operating yeah. correctly to get you through the season. Um, yes. Dave, congratulations, buddy, on securing your card. I'm proud of you and good luck in the upcoming season. Thanks, Thomas. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, I can't thank you enough for the help you've sort of given me along the way. And yeah, it's been, it's been a good journey and just hope it's a fruitful one. Yeah, well, we'll catch up with you. We'll do another episode at the end of the awesome. season. Yeah, yeah, maybe we do one mid-season, maybe. That yeah, yeah. Well, what we can do whatever you want. Like, <laughs> obviously, if yeah. you want to come on and tell us what's going on, we're definitely going to yeah. listen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That'd be awesome. All right, thanks, buddy. Thank you. Appreciate it.